Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Hey, welcome back to our series on Seminar 17. We are looking at chapters 4 through 6. And what happened when we got started on those chapters is that it seemed like an appropriate place to take a minute and see what we could gather up about each of these four discourses. Master, university, hysteric, and analyst. And see what we could say about them at this point in Seminar 17. We're about 100 pages into this book. We're about halfway through Seminar 17. And now I think it's worth slowing down a second and looking at these important chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6. Not, however, in that order. Knowing what we now know about the four discourses, I think we can start with chapter 6, zoom out a little bit, offer some summative remarks, ideally arriving at a proper definition of discourse for Lacan, and then get back into some of the nuts and bolts that we see happening in chapters 4 and 5 around that key topic for Lacan at this point in the seminar, the field of jouissance, which again he even toys with as being the Lacanian field. To sum up, let's take stock. As you've heard me say, Lacan begins the 1960s with a specific definition of the signifier. You've heard it before? Let's hear it again. The signifier is what represents the subject to another signifier. Now, there are three constitutive elements here, not including, of course, the differential relation between the first two. Hold up, though. Two signifiers and a subject. These are the three constitutive elements of this definition of the signifier. Two signifiers and a subject. What results is a topology of the subject that we've seen before. And I'll draw one more time for us to take a look at. The signifier is what represents the subject to another signifier. Now the order is more complicated than that as you know and as we're about to reiterate, but that's the basic topology of the subject. By the late 1960s, however, Lacan is ready to add a missing fourth element to this topology. The missing fourth element that you just heard me signal as the differential relation between S1 and S2. You have two signifiers in a subject. Well, there's also a differential relation that allows for a linkage between these two signifiers, an S numbered one and an S numbered two, differently numbered in order to indicate their difference from each other. This fourth element, this differential relation between S1 and S2, that results in or effects the split subject, that S with a slash through it, is key. We know this differential relation for what it is in Lacan's thought and how we symbolize and talk about this differential relation. It's objet a. 
This is the same way we've always talked about OBJA. It's a differential relation between any two events or entities that allows them to remain distinct, to appear distinct, to function as different. By the late 1960s, Lacan has found a place for this differential relation in his topology of the subject. It's underneath the S2. That is precisely where OBJA goes. Now, if you've got eyes to see, we are also looking at the discourse of the master. But hold off on that for a second. All we're looking to do is to recall in 17 where Lacan says at the start of things, we've also got this OBJA. Where are we going to put it? I got an idea. Let's just put it down in the bottom right and flesh out this topology of the subject into something more akin to what he's going to know as a discourse. For now, we have OBJA as the marker of a differential relation between two entities. And you've also heard us talk about jouissance this way, the jouissance of the big barred other as a knowledge process occurs in the differential relation between iterations of itself, of this topology across time and applied to different living individuals. Now that's kind of a wonky technical way of saying what we've been saying. Let's earn it and simplify things one step at a time. Backing up, hear me now. The barred subject is an effect of the linkage between S1 and S2. We've got that under our belts at this point. The barred subject was not there first. The linkage between S1 and S2 was there first. And then you can ask yourself which came first, S2 or S1, and we will. But that linkage is what conditions the barred subject that emerges as a mark left by the other in the living individual. We've heard all this before. Here's what I want to add, though. This is not the only thing that is produced by this linkage between S1 and S2. When an S1 emerges from an S2 to represent a subject by marking the living individual, something else, something additional is produced as well. A loss and a gain simultaneously. And that's what we see in the bottom right hand quadrant of this four-footed animal. OBJA marks a field of production something else is also produced by this connection between S1 and S2. It doesn't just affect barred subjects, it also produces something else. And this something else I'm telling you is a two-part process, a two-part set, if you will, comprised of a loss and a gain that are popping at precisely the same time. You see Lacan giving us some terms for this, on page 93 of Seminar 17. Under the other, this upper right-hand position in the four-part structure that we've been working with, is the place where loss is produced, the loss of jouissance from which we extract the function of surplus jouissance. Now, the way to read that is to say that we're looking at a loss of sexual jouissance, which we're about to define, and a gain of surplus jouissance. That's what OBJA marks. It's a field of deficit 
and surplus, loss and gain. What it produces is a loss of sexual jouissance that allows for simultaneously, reciprocally constitutes the ability to extract, to gain surplus jouissance. So that's what's happening. Objea is this field of loss and gain. Now, all too often, when we write that four-footed structure in the bottom right-hand quadrant, we usually write production, but sometimes Lacan even will slip and write loss, and you can see him doing that on page 93. It's less a slip than a prioritization of sexual jouissance over surplus jouissance. Far better, in my view, to keep the word production there and know that it's the production of a loss and the production of a gain. And that these two, loss and gain, deficit and surplus, are reciprocally constitutive. The loss of access to sexual jouissance is what allows for surplus jouissance. And the allowance or embrace of surplus jouissance is precisely what obscures our pathway to sexual jouissance. You can call these dialectical terms, but I prefer this notion of reciprocal constitution. They bring each other into existence. It's a loss and a gain. And that's what you see happening here. The loss of sexual jouissance from which we extract as a gain the function of surplus jouissance. Objet A in the bottom right-hand quadrant of Lacan's discursive structure marks both and marks them as reciprocally constitutive. Together, these four elements and their four position structure or topology give us a Lacanian theory of discourse. If we were to chart this out, to put it on a spectrum, across the 1960s in this kind of summative statement we're offering here, you'd have an emphasis on the signifier in the early 1960s, and an emphasis on discourse in the late 1960s. In between is the subject. So what you see is signifier to subject to discourse. And that is the trajectory that we've been working with here, from the early 60s definition of the signifier to the understanding of how signifiers in linking with each other in differential relations affect subjects, and then how signifiers plus subjects plug into this structure known as discourse that also brings us into contact with jouissance, a twofold jouissance, sexual and surplus. Let's see if we can be precise even more. The subject remains central throughout this sequence, and its relations to signification on one hand and jouissance on the other become paramount. I think that's really what Lacan is working out here. The subject has a twofold relation to signification and to jouissance. And that what he, that's what he's trying to crack at this point. What he's trying to crack is the code that allows for these, this two-part relationship, one of which is also part and parcel of a non-rapport to sexual jouissance, which we'll come to. The point, though, is that the barred subject is bound to a field of signification 
Here, Lacan often designates it with master signifier, which we'll talk about. But at the same time, discourse also inserts the subject by way of knowledge into a field of jouissance. This is what we're trying to figure out. The twofold relation with a bit of non-rapport in there as well between the subject and signification and the subject and jouissance. They're happening at the same time in Lacan's theory of discourse. Again, though, don't just take it from me. You can hear it from Lacan as well. That page comes to us again, a good one, page 93. Second full paragraph. It can be completely manipulated by means of this relation between S1 and S2 that you see written there. But then check out this key sentence. In this discourse, the subject finds himself along with all the illusions that this comprises, bound to the master signifier, whereas knowledge brings about his insertion into jouissance. That's what we're trying to figure out here. The subject in connection to signifying processes through what Lacan is defining here as the master signifier, and at the same time the way that knowledge takes this subject and inserts it into a field of jouissance defined by loss and gain. That's what we're working on. That's what we're up to here. 93 is a great page, by the way. One we'll come back to. Have it in mind. Let's take each of these in turn, starting first with the subject's relationship to signification, and then we'll talk about how knowledge inserts that subject, as Lacan puts it, into the field of jouissance. The subject's relation to signification is really quite familiar to us at this point. You start with a body of signifiers in differential relation to one another. These are your S1s and your S2s. Pick a language, any language, and you'll see S1s and S2s in differential relation to each other. Open a dictionary, any dictionary, and you'll see signifiers hanging together in differential relation. Write a sentence any sentence you like. And again, you'll see signifiers in differential relation to each other, different signifiers linked together in such a way that allows for meaning to be assigned. The algebraic symbol for these differential systems, languages, dictionaries, and sentences, each part and parcel of the big barred other that we've been discussing is fundamentally S2. S2 is a field of differential signifiers that hang together. This is what I mean when following Lacan, I say S2 is an excised subset of the big barred other. And don't forget, the big barred other is language, if you want to play it that way. It's the symbolic as well. This is this treasure trove of signifiers, and S2 is just a subset of that treasure trove, an incomplete treasure trove, but a very opulent one. Now, second, if you have this S2 as a body of signifiers and differential relation to them, what then is the S1? Folks asked about this in our first discussion. It's clear that we need to iron it out even more. Out of this S2, one single signifier emerges. This is the approach I want to take to getting us to an S1. 
out of S2, a single character or signifier emerges, and that is the S1. And with this emergence of an S1 from the field of signifiers, a special signifier that steps out from the collection of signifiers, now you get your BART subject. Now you get a representational logic. S2 first, S1 second, BARD subject third. Let's be clear. Only by first emerging from a discourse formation, an S2, can this signifier, S1, then do the work of representing a subject. Now, we have seen this before, and all I need to do is add an arrow to the topology that we've been messing with, and you'll immediately recognize this. Out of the S2, an S1 emerges and can then do the work of representing the subject. We have seen this diagram before, and you can imagine where I'm heading with this. This is the arc that I'm tracing here, from an S2 to an S1 to a barred subject. The standard mode here is one of repetition, you've heard me say. We don't need to get into all that quite yet. We're just trying to keep it simple. So let's take some examples here. Maybe examples you've heard before and thought of on your own. An S2 could be a collection of familial first names in maybe a traditional family where names are passed down from one generation to the next. You've got James Sr., James Jr., James the first, third, and so on and so forth. You can have a collection of familial first names that gets, get passed down. The entire collection of all the first names in that family is an S2. That's what S2 means. Think about it this way, too, and recall our previous series on Seminar 16 for this point. Take all the names in existence on Earth at this point, and if it was properly going to be the big other, it would be all past names and all future names that don't exist. Yet another reason why the big other then itself doesn't exist, because the names in the future that would constitute its collection of every name ever don't exist yet. They could only be represented by X's or Y's or empty sets. Nevertheless, the point that we're making here is that if you take all the names on Earth at this point, and then you've got your family with the particular first names that are characteristic of your family, your family of names is a subset of all the first names in operation on Earth right now. The big barred other, that A with a slash through it, that's all the names on Earth right now. It's barred because it doesn't include every name of all time, right? S2 as an excised subset of the big barred other is here well represented by the particular first names in your particular family. Emphasis on the part in particular. This is an excised part of the big barred other. That S2 in this example, the first names in your family, which is a subset of the first names in the big barred other, which here would represent all first names in operation on Earth. Now you can see how this would unfold at the level of repetition. 
because the S1 that would be assigned to a living individual born into that family would be a repetition of an S1 in the field of S2 that is the first name collection of that family. And every name in that family, because it's an excise subset of the big barred other, would also be a repetition of a name contained in the big barred other. So you're born and you're given the name Christopher. It's a family name. It's a Christian name. So the family doesn't just have to be your biological family. It can also be a chosen family at the level of a religion, at the level of a tradition, you name it. Here, your name, Christopher, is an S1. But it wouldn't be the only time that name has occurred in your family. Your grandfather may have been named Christopher. In other words, Christopher derives from another field of signifiers, first names, where Christopher is also appearing. And as you know, you just heard me say, Christopher is not unique to your family. There are many families on earth today who have Christophers in them. You see, that would in turn be an extension from the big barred other. So Christopher as a signifier is in the big barred other, in the S2, is your S1 and is also the mark that your living individualism receives when you're named. You see how this logic of repetition works. Christopher is reiterated as it cycles from the big barred other into your family, from your family to you and into your living organismic life. So what you have at the level of S2 is a collection of first names. And then one of them, here Christopher, is assigned to a newborn living individual. Here what you see, as you've heard me say in the past, is S1 as a unary trait that serves two functions. Subjugation, there's the no of the father, there's prohibition. And subjectification, there's the name of the father. Not prohibition, but positionality, positioning one's body in a symbolic field. The S1 here, before it would become anything like a master signifier, in other words, is going to function as a unary trait. This is what I mean when I say this master signifier business that Lacan gets into is a little bit complex, more complex than he lets on. What we're talking about when S1 functions as a unary trait, a single stroke, a character that is isolated from a field known as S2 and designated yours, what we see happening there again is a mark of subjectivity that is introduced into the body of the living individual. And you know how we symbolize that. It's right here. It's a barred subject. It's that S with a slash in it. That slash is the mark that is introduced into the body of the living individual by this naming process that we've been rehearsing. Now, I think this is an easy way to understand it. For some folks, Lacan's riff on desire on page 93 is even easier. But notice what he also adds on 93, which couldn't... Uh, which I couldn't help but smile at a little bit. He talks about desire. And the phrase he's referring to is this one that we also get from the early 1960s Lacan. 
my desire is the big bard other's desire. Now I'm modifying it to fit with his later development of the thought, but that's the basic riff here. Man's desire is the other's desire. Notice how he sets this up. This represents what I spoke about in an ancient register at a time when I used to be happy with this sort of approximation, when I said that man's desire is the other's desire. You can see it there on page 93. He's cueing that up because what he wants to show again is that sequence from an S2 to an S1. And that's why in the little topology that you see on page 93, there's the big O other, by which he means the big barred other, by which he means an S2. So don't get hung up here. He's just fucking around. And then he wants desire to be the thing, the master signifier, the unary trait turned master signifier that the subject receives from this process. So if desire is easier for you to understand than a simple naming practice, here it is, right on page 93. I, as a living subject, part bio and part socio, and the effect of a desire derived from all the societal norms and expectations into which I was born. There's your big barred other. Listen, here it is again. It's the same naming process that we've been just describing. I, as a living subject, one part bioanimalistic and one part sociolinguistified, one part enunciating and one part grammatical. You can spin this out however you want. I'm the effect effect of a desire that has been derived from that of the big barred other, by which I mean all of the societal norms and expectations into which I was born. That is also an S2. Now, I think it's more helpful, honestly, to allow for some more subtlety in Lacan's concepts here. Not S1, as master signifier, but S1 as a two-part unary trait function that then can become a master signifier, as we've discussed and as I'm about to summarize again. And not just the big other here. Nah, man, we're talking about an S2 that is an excise subset of a big barred other. You know in this series our point is clear, coherent, and accessible. What I'm trying to suggest here now is that sometimes in order to arrive at clarity, coherence, and accessibility, you have to introduce some more subtle distinctions, some more precise conceptual work. Yes, it adds more to the infrastructure, but in a way that clarifies things, in ways that Lacan very rarely does. He very rarely slows down and links all of his concepts together. And that's part of what we're doing here. Yeah, it adds complexity, but I think it also adds clarity. Check it out. On page 89, you can see Lacan messing with some of this obscurity and ambiguity that we're trying to clarify here. Page 89, for instance, gives, you him, gives uh, us a version of Lacan with the master signifier in front of him. As you can see on page 89, he's describing this S1 as the master signifier. And as you know, I can't emphasize this enough, I believe it's more complicated than that. It's not just a master signifier, but you can read him 
pointing it out there on page 89. Please also note, however, that master signifier on page 89 is in quotation marks. Those are important quotation marks. When we read the S1 that is derived from the field of S2 and used to mark the living individual as a barred subject, at some level, we are just thinking of naming practices, just to keep things simple. But let me specify exactly what that is again. Initially, that S1, Christopher, derived from all the Christophers in your family and all the other first names there, initially that serves as a unary trait, and a unary trait with two functions. First, it subjugates you. It effectively works as a no, a prohibition that subordinates you to a discursive logic, a linguistic field. In naming you Christopher, though, it also subjectifies you. It doesn't just subjugate you. It positions you within that field. It gives you a place in that symbolic field where everybody has a name and where you and being named Christopher are linked up to previous generations, to ancestors of Christophers dating all the way back to Jesus of Nazareth, perhaps. You see where I'm going with this. This is not the know of the Father, but the name of the Father. The name that positions you in a social order, in a linguistic field, known here as S2. Whatever that is, the whole history of Christianity or the history of naming practices in your family. It almost doesn't matter how big you make your S2. It's always going to be a subset of the big barred other. So if your S2 is as big as the entire history of Christianity, and that's where your name Christopher derives from, guess what? Christianity ain't the only fucking religion on earth. There are other religions that have other naming practices. Hey, Muhammad, you see what I'm saying? That come out and function very similarly. That's why even if you widen your S2 beyond the family to make it about the history of Christianity, you're still only dealing with an excise subset of the big barred other. A big barred other that would include all religions on earth and their naming practices, not just yours. You can see the ethics here. It's an important way to think. It's a good thing to have in mind. Thank God, if we could say that, <laughs> that the other is barred. Now, once the unary trait does its job of marking the subject as split, now we can see something more properly akin to the master signifier occurring. The master signifier happens in a lot of ways. Let me describe one, and in a way that keeps it simple. When a unary trait is accepted, when you accept your name in its subjugating and subjectifying capacities, when you accept this, you become a newly founded subject. And one of the things that newly founded subjects, newly named subjects, think toddlers, start doing is they start addressing themselves to others and telling others what their name is. In other words, they start feeding back into the field from which their name came this very signifier. So, 
one of the basic questions that you ask a little kid when you meet them is, what's your name? And kids are cute, right, because they're still learning to talk. And oftentimes they don't pronounce words, you know, in ways that adults do. And so they have a really cute way of saying their name or some other word. It doesn't have to be their name. The point, though, is that what you see is a newly founded subject speaking the signifier that constituted them as a subject and in a way that feeds that signifier back into the signifying system from which it came. That's why I draw this additional arrow here from a barred subject back up to the S1 and then across to the S2. That would be a very clear way of understanding what Lacan means here by a master signifier. It's a signifier that the newly barred subject regurgitates and feeds back into the system at a very simple level by simply telling someone what their name is. And now what you can see is a kind of circuit get, that gets going here between the S2 to the S1 to the barred subject, back to the S1, back to the S2 to the S1 to the barred subject, and you get this kind of like looping mechanism. That looping mechanism is how language breathes. This is what a living language looks like. A series of S2s, S1s, and speaking subjects linked together in this repeating, iterative, and also at the same time difference-inducing, because a living language evolves, right? Through usage in different spaces, different times, by different subjects. In this circuit, though, you see what it means for a language to live. It's for an S2 to deliver S1s to barred subjects that then cough up S1s and feed them back into S2s that then deliver new S1s to new barred subjects. This is part of the repetitive circuit of language. This is also where language enjoys. This is also the jouissance of structure, of repetition that Lacan keeps coming back to. We're not there yet. Hold tight. We're moving slow and steady. So what's new in all of this? What's new here is that the living subject's expression of their master signifier to and within the field of knowledge from which it emerged, an S1 to an S2, it's not only an expression of castration. In other words, a signal that you accept your subjugated and subjectified position in that social order from which you received a name. It's also an expression of castration addressed to and within the field of jouissance. And that's new. Because the knowledge process at work and at play in any given S2, as we've discussed, is always also a means of jouissance. That's the key hook here. Knowledge is a means of jouissance. S2 is the algebraic term we use for knowledge as a means of jouissance. Not as a closed area as the university would have it, but instead as an open-ended and continually opening process of inquiry, you might think, of exploration, knowledge as a process. By repeating itself topologically, it enjoys. 
And when the barred subject accepts their master signifier, their unary trait as master signifier, and feeds it back into S2, what that is doing is inserting that subject via the signifier into this field of knowledge that is also a means of jouissance. Check it out. Lacan has a really good riff on this on page 89 of Seminar 17. It's a second, first full paragraph. What I am advancing, what I'm going to announce that is new today, is that in expressing itself toward those means of jouissance that are what is called knowledge, the master signifier not only induces but determines castration. So here you see that circuit that I was just describing. The most important part here, I think the castration part is pretty clear. The unary trait castrates, bars a subject, introduces the subject to lack and to desire. But what Lacan is here pointing out is that when you accept your unary trait as a master signifier, and when you address it, express it toward the S2 from which it came in the chart that I just showed you, what you're doing is you're expressing this signifier that is your name toward the means of jouissance from which it came. Means of jouissance that he is here calling once more knowledge. That's the new part in all of this. That's the great part of what he's working on here in Seminar 17, is that knowledge and jouissance become bound up together in a repetitive circuitry that we have been diagramming and discussing these past sessions. What this means when he says that knowledge is a means of jouissance, don't get it twisted. It means that enjoyment is a product of the knowledge process. The knowledge process doesn't just produce epistemological insights. Fundamentally, more interestingly to Lacan, what it produces is enjoyment. Enjoyment is the product of knowledge. That's what he means when he says that knowledge is a means of jouissance. It's a way of accessing jouissance. Now, that access point is going to be the sticky one for us to discuss. Again, because this product that is enjoyment, that the knowledge process, as it unfolds in an S2 that is excised from the big barred other, see how we're stacking all these terms to make a coherent theory and discourse about what Lacan is doing here? This product, as you've heard me say, this enjoyment produced by the knowledge process, it comes in two reciprocally constitutive forms. That's why I say the access is the sticky part. One form lost and one form gained. You know where I'm going with this. The enjoyment that is produced by the knowledge process into which the subject inserts themselves when they express their master signifier and address it at that knowledge process is twofold. There's an enjoyment lost and an enjoyment gained. The name for the enjoyment lost, we've been saying, is sexual enjoyment. And again, we'll define it in a second. What is gained in that renunciation of sexual jouissance is surplus jouissance. It's a gain that you get 
in and through the process of renunciation. Now, it's not the only gain that you can get from renouncing enjoyment, right? Think about how many people enjoy telling you how much dessert they didn't eat the night before. Think about how much people like to brag about all of their abstinence, about their ability to withstand, about their ability to tolerate. This is like one of the basic conditions of liberalism, right? Is that they like to court these abysses, as my friend John Durham Peters puts it, and then tell you about it. Look how close to evil I came and did not succumb. They enjoy talking through all of their renunciations. In other words, they are enjoying the masochism that they go through when they flog themselves metaphorically and sometimes literally in the field of of withstanding. Think about that term, withstanding. It works well here. My point here, though, is that the product of the knowledge process, what it produces, is a twofold experience of enjoyment, one lost and one gained. Notice how Lacan presents this two-part production, again on that great page 93. You have to recall this. What is produced is a loss of sexual jouissance from which we extract the function of surplus jouissance. There's that key passage again. So here it is. Knowledge inserts the subject by way of signification into a field of jouissance in which sexual enjoyment is lost and surplus enjoyment is found. That's the key part here. That's what we're working on here. Knowledge inserts the subject by way of signification, these S1s and these S2s, into a field of jouissance in which sexual enjoyment is lost and surplus enjoyment is found. That's the line to memorize and to think through here. This lost and found logic in the field of jouissance is what's new here and what we're trying to wrap our heads around. Not just the relationship between knowledge and enjoyment, but what's up with the lost and found logic that we see playing out in the field of enjoyment. Again, one step at a time. Knowledge, we know, marks a relation to a certain kind of jouissance, surplus. But this relation is founded on a certain non-relation to another kind of jouissance, sexual. This is what Lacan is getting at at the bottom of page 93. When he's talking about the hysterics discourse, check it out. This is where the hysterics discourse gets its price from. It has the merit of maintaining in the discursive institution the question of what the sexual relation is. All y'all want to talk about sexual rapport, non-rapport? Don't start with 20. Start with 14. Work your way up into 17. You'll have a clear understanding of what he's talking about here. All this talk of the sexual rapport, okay? Sexual relation is namely how a subject is able to maintain it or, to express it better, is unable to maintain it. The sexual relation is defined by our inability to maintain it. See? You see? It's a non-report. Scroll down a little bit more. Last full paragraph. What is interesting is the truth that, check it out, straight from Lacan, Seminar 17, what is in sexual knowledge is entirely yielded up as foreign to the subject. This is what in Freudian discourse was originally called the repressed. 
sexual knowledge, the field of sexual enjoyment, the sexual, all these ways that Lacan writes this. You'll note too that whenever he writes this, it's the sexual. He's not talking about sex. We'll come to that in a second again. The sexual relation, sexual knowledge, sexual enjoyment. It is yielded up as foreign to the subject. It is renounced. It is given up on. It is unable to be maintained in relation to one's identity. That inability, that incapacity, that giving up, that renunciation of sexual jouissance is precisely what allows us to acquire surplus jouissance as a reduced, attenuated variant of that sexual jouissance. That's what's up here. Knowledge gives us a relation to surplus jouissance that is founded on a non-relation to sexual jouissance. That's the point. Let's be categorical. The condition of possibility for surplus enjoyment is our acceptance of the impossibility of sexual enjoyment. Only by renouncing the latter do we gain access to the former. You have to lose access to sexual jouissance in order to gain access to surplus jouissance. For this reason, sexual jouissance always is elusive relative to surplus jouissance. But check it out. Surplus jouissance is always in some sense beholden to sexual enjoyment. Surplus enjoyment hear me now, is always an attenuated variant on a reduction of sexual jouissance. Lacan does good with reduction here, reduction of sexual jouissance. But in the field of surplus enjoyment, sexual enjoyment is always a latent promise, a hope, a longed-for, dreamed, fantasized-about horizon. By renouncing any and all pathways or pursuits, of sexual jouissance, we are allowed to keep on dreaming and fantasizing about them in the field of surplus jouissance. And with this, at long last, drum roll and stuff, unless of course you've seen our series on seminar 16 and 14, in which case you already know all this, here we finally arrive at a clear and coherent definition of sexual enjoyment. Sexual enjoyment is not about the physical, biological, material act of copulation. We are not talking about sex, you heard me say. And in fact, in analytic theory, we're never talking about sex. No one ever read Freud or Lacan and learned how to be a better lover. Lacan is adamant and outspoken about this. Psychoanalysis, you heard me say in our series on Seminar 10, is an erotology. Lacan is explicit about this. It's an erotology. But it teaches us absolutely nothing about erotic technique. You don't learn anything about the bedroom from reading Lacan or Freud. Lacan is very keen on this point and is almost even reluctant to discuss sex and sexuality. You can hear that reluctance in his uh, uh, series, in, in his seminar on, our, on Seminar 11. Let's even take this risk further. There is no sexual relation in analytic experience. 
And yet it's precisely this, the constitutive non-rapport of all who speak, that we're always discussing. That's one of the dilemmas of the analytic situation, is that there's no sexual relation there, and yet that's all we talk about. Again, let's keep it categorical and risky. When Lacan says sexual jouissance, he means wholeness, completion, consistency, and oneness. And I don't mind risking it. Maybe this is incorrect, but I think we're on to something when we think of sexual jouissance not as the act of two bodies pressed together in search of intertwined soldom, but instead think about sex in terms of the sexual as a search for wholeness, a longing for completion, oneness, and consistency. That's sexual enjoyment. The promise of sexual jouissance is that of oneness. Language, my friends, is indeed the house of human being. But you can't get through the front door without renouncing this pursuit of sexual enjoyment. It's the missing part of Heidegger's claim that language is the house of being. My question, and the one Lacan helps us answer, is what's the cost of admission? What does it cost for me to get in there? That's where Lacan comes in. It's the renunciation of sexual jouissance that allows us to enter the house of being known as language. You have to step off the pathway to sexual enjoyment in order to enter the house of human being. That's, again, what Lacan is suggesting here at the bottom of page 93, this terrific emphasis on yielding up sexual knowledge as foreign. You have to give it up and allow it to remain foreign. That's just one example of Lacan saying this, this riff over and over again. Here's the thing, though. Just because you renounce sexual enjoyment doesn't mean you ever stop dreaming about wholeness, completion, and the like. In fact, if you look at dreams, these are the two basic things that happen. You're either being torn apart in your dreams or you're achieving some sort of a union. Usually, the former is more pronounced. Most dreams are dreams of falling apart, dreams of bodily fragmentation. Lacan is also clear on this point in his earlier work. But there's also this other dream, more properly beyond and in waking life as fantasy of wholeness, completion, and the like. I would suggest that it's even precisely here where we renounce sexual enjoyment that we start dreaming about wholeness, completion, and the like. Nobody's dreaming about these things until we're told we are no longer allowed to pursue them. The book of Genesis, put a bit more archly, is only legible after the fall. And with it, all of our Edenic uteromorphic fantasies of oneness. All of that shit is after the fall. Here, we may have on our hands the origin of the fundamental fantasy that defines the living subject. Just throwing that out there for you. And that's not all. This is the great part about renouncing sexual enjoyment, is that you don't just get the fundamental fantasy in exchange, but you also get this thing called, <gasps> how exciting, surplus enjoyment. 
I'm being sarcastic, right? Because that's a hell of a thing to get in exchange, the curse of surplus enjoyment. Where the promise of sexual enjoyment was, the pursuit of surplus enjoyment becomes. That's the main point Lacan is working at here. Not about fundamental fantasy and its foundation, but about what we get in exchange for allowing sexual knowledge to become foreign to us. What we get in exchange, exchange is this notion of surplus enjoyment, where the promise of sexual jouissance was, the pursuit of surplus enjoyment becomes. Long story short, where does this leave us? Where the hell do we find ourselves now? I think at this point, we can begin to see how the subject is, one, bound to signification in the topology of the subject that we've been discussing. In a very real sense, this is the, the main work that we've been doing in seminar 16 and up to this point in 17, is really showing how the subject is bound to signification. But we're also doing so in such a way that allows us to demonstrate, two, how the subject is inserted into a lost and found logic of jouissance by way of this tie to signification. The barred subject's connection to S1 and S2 and how that circuit is worked is precisely what takes that barred subject and inserts it into a field of jouissance where the sexual is renounced and the surplus aspect of enjoyment is accepted. It's by way of this that we see the subject inserted into the field of jouissance. And all of this together is what Lacan means by discourse. A discourse always serves these two functions. Name your discourse. Lacan chooses four. You might extrapolate that to 24. In each of the discourses in a Lacanian guise, what you're going to see is a subject that is bound to signification and by way of that tie inserted into a field of jouissance where one type of jouissance is renounced and another is accepted, where one is lost and another is found. You know what I would add, though, is that this is also why, even though the discourse of the analyst is the source of the other three discourses in Lacan's thought, this is also why he routinely begins and emphasizes at this point in his thought the discourse of the master instead. Again, the discourse of the master is readily apparent in the topology of the subject that we've been working with here. And yet, it's in the discourse of the master that you also see these two elements working, this bound to signification and this inserted into the lost and found logics of jouissance. Check it out. The S1 to the S2 in the discourse of the master, so the top two positions, what that shows is the field of signification. I think we're clear on that. What the barred S in the lower left-hand quadrant of the discourse of the master shows is the effect of signification on the living individual. Subjugation and subjectification. And that little a in the bottom right-hand quadrant, it shows that this field of signification to which the subject is bound 
also produces something in the way of loss and in the way of gain, deficit and surplus, and all in the field of jouissance. At stake here, I believe, are two primary truths, both about the discourse of the master, but also, more importantly, about the unconscious. There is a secret affinity between the master's truth, Bard's subjectivity, and the slave's product, namely the dispossession of knowledge that the slave suffers by obeying the master. In order to be the master, check it out, something has to remain hidden, Lacan tells us on page 89. What's hidden is a part of you that remains not represented by the very same signifier that designates your mastery, that S1. Again, page 89 is where Lacan's telling you all this. There's some part of you that is not represented by that S1 that nevertheless does the work of representing you as a subject to and within a field of signifiers. At stake here, though, is not just the hidden truth of the master as a subject, but its connection to that of the other, of the slave. Lacan says that the subject asserts himself as knowing himself, again on page 89. But here's the thing. This assertion, he adds, finds its truth in the work of the other par excellence. This is work about which the master essentially knows nothing. And as you've heard me say, doesn't want to know anything either. So it's not just that there's the hidden truth of the subject that you see in the bottom left-hand part of the discourse of the master, but there's also this connection to the other, to the slave, where the master doesn't want to know anything about the work and the labor of the slave. Check it out, though. This knife cuts both ways. In obeying the master's command, the slave also loses something. His know-how, which the philosopher or the university commodifies for the master's consumption, as you've heard, as you've heard us work out in previous lectures, this effectively dispossesses the slave of their knowledge, and with their knowledge, the slave's access to jouissance. Lacan is clear about this on page 89. When the slave is dispossessed of their know-how, because that know-how is commodified, packaged, and sold for the master's consumption, that dispossession of knowledge is also a dispossession of jouissance. The slave loses their access to jouissance, Lacan tells us. I want to make a second point here, though, before we conclude. This knife that cuts both ways, where everybody, masters and slaves alike, lose something, this is the truth of the master's discourse. The knowledge of the master as well as the slave becomes headless, split off from each field of subjectivization. A field of knowledge that is split off and about which Lacan says very clearly on the next page, page 90, nobody understands a thing. What he is talking about here is the unconscious. Master and slave alike 
because they know nothing of knowledge at the end of this process, the one willfully ignorant and the other dispossessed by the university. Both points, both subjectivities, have a headless, split-off, unconscious relation to this knowledge. Knowledge about which, Lacan says, nobody understands a thing. Check it out. It's at the top of page 90. If you have the book, you can see Lacan really spelling this stuff out. It is in this sort of way that we might illustrate the knowledge that Freud defines by placing it between the enigmatic parentheses of the Erverdrangt. He's talking about primary repression here. That er up front is a good one. Which means precisely that what has not had to be repressed because it has been repressed from the start. This headless knowledge, if I can put it like this, is indeed a politically definable fact, structurally definable. Consequently, everything that is produced through work, I mean this in the strict, full sense of the word produced. So think master, slave, work, production. That's what he's talking about here. Everything that is produced concerning the truth of the master, namely what he as a subject's hide, as a subject hides, is going to join company with this knowledge insofar as it is split off, erferdrankt, again, primarily repressed, primordially repressed, insofar as it is split off and nobody understands a thing about it. Knowledge eludes master and slave in the discourse of the master. It's an important and really interesting move that Lacan makes here. Again, working at the discourse of the master. He continues this thought on page 91 with just a couple of blips that I'll leave you with. The unconscious, that is, as the debris of this knowledge, this savoir, in the form of disjointed knowledge. That's what he's talking about here. It is headless. It is split off. Nobody understands a thing about it. It is rendered as debris, and it is fundamentally disjointed. Here he is defining the unconscious. He says it explicitly on 91. And then he continues, This disconnected knowledge, such as we find it in the unconscious, is foreign to the discourse of science. And then he's got some pretty interesting riffs on mathematics, thermodynamics, physics, as master's sciences. I'll let you read that and figure out why and how these are master's sciences, which is very different from the hysterical pursuit of science. Not because it's hilarious, but because it's guided by the discourse of hysteria that we've discussed in previous lectures. At stake here, to make a long story short, is the hidden knowledge of the master and the stolen knowledge of the slave. Both, in a sense, remain ignorant in the discourse of the master. Both signal a reduction of jouissance. Why? Because knowledge is the means of jouissance. So if the master's access to knowledge is hidden and the slave's access to knowledge is stolen, both of them, in losing knowledge, also lose access to jouissance. And what that means for Lacan is a reduction of jouissance, in which sexual jouissance becomes an impossible object of fantasy and 
and impossible objective of surplus enjoyment. That's an important part. What the master and the slave forfeit, what they both have to do without as the discourse of the master unfolds, is knowledge. And because knowledge is denied both positions, master and slave alike suffer this reduction of jouissance, because knowledge is a means of jouissance for Lacan. And what this means is that sexual enjoyment, as wholeness, as oneness, and so forth, it becomes first an impossible object of fantasy. There you have your fundamental fantasy. And second, the impossible objective or goal of surplus enjoyment. Because isn't that always what surplus jouissance promises? Sexual jouissance. Get the phone and become whole. Buy the minivan and secure the family. Make no mistake, the defining feature of the master's truth, that barred S in the bottom left, and the slave's product, that little a in the bottom right, is the same. In a word, impotence. And again, by impotence, I mean impotentiality. Adanamia, in the tradition that extends from Aristotle to Agamben along the modalities. Surplus enjoyment makes sexual enjoyment impossible, impotential. It becomes adynamic. It becomes an incapacity. And all, don't forget, thanks to the university. It's the philosopher who incapacitates the people in service to the ignorance of power. If you want the social-political stake here, that's what it is. Yeah, the master and the slave both suffer the deprivation of knowledge, and as a result, a reduction of enjoyment. But why and how? The answer lies in the discourse of the university. It's the philosopher who incapacitates the people by dispossessing the worker of knowledge and doing so in service to a formation of power that is all too willing to remain ignorant. In other words, without knowledge either. And the philosopher, here rendered as the discourse of the university, does that work. It serves power's ignorance by depriving the people of knowledge. Isn't that a lost book in the phenomenology of spirit? Lordship, bondage, and, and learning. Now that is a dialectic that I would like to see traced out. Not just lordship and bondage, not just master and slave. I want lordship, bondage, and learning. Power, the people, and the philosopher. This is what's at stake in Lacan's understanding of the discourse of the master, which I take here to be a great illustration of what happens when we are inserted into the field of jouissance with all of its lost and found logics. Thanks for listening to Lectures on Lacan. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. 